Blog Talk Radio. Galaxy to join us on this planet 
we call Earth. So without further ado, I will be bringing in Lester Love. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. Good evening. You sound good. <laughs> yeah, running around does it to you each and every time. So what is the topic of the day for Magic Monday? Well, uh, since it, since we're coming up on the equinox, I thought we'd talk about um, getting an early start on uh, all things uh, all things about girls. Okay, sounds good. I can do that. We can handle that. Mm-hmm. I think we're ready for that. So for people out there, get your pencils and papers ready, and like I said, and be by that dial, the press number one if you have some questions. So we need to pay attention because now class is in session. All right. I do have one question for you before we start. Okay. What about, everybody's talking about uh, retrograde. That's all I heard Uh today. Retrograde, retrograde, retrograde. Like things go mm-hmm. wrong, it was like it's retrograde. It's kind of, can you educate me a little bit about the retrograde energy that everybody's like, if things go wrong, they bring it on retrograde. Well, okay. Okay. Well, see, once again, um, this, this whole understanding goes back to when people in different cultures were stargazing thousands of years ago. And as they looked up in the night sky, they noticed that there were a night after night, there were certain lights that always stayed in the same place, in the same position. And at the same time, there were certain lights in the sky that that didn't stay in the same position. Um, and so they called those planets, which which the word means wanderers. They wander around. They don't stay in the same position. And in this observation of these different wanderers, they notice there are times in which they appear to stop in their progression and would actually go backwards from where they came for a while, and then they stop and they come forward. So so they, we call that a planetary retrograde. And the different planets have different retrogrades. The one that our culture is most familiar with is Mercury retrograde. And that deals with um, uh, basically communications. It, it deals with a lot more than that, but that's what it gets blamed for when, um, you know, in a time of Mercury retrograde, you want to make sure that you write down that address and, you know, and repeat it back to the person a couple of times because numbers can be reversed. Um, you write the wrong street. You know, you got the numbers right, but the street is wrong. Um, now, now you see, the the ancients, uh, when they were looking at the sky, they were noticing that there were certain correspondences. There were certain things that were happening when these particular celestial events occurred. And so they noticed that you don't want to do any forward um, 
like you you, you wouldn't want to sign a contract during Mercury retrograde. You wouldn't want to buy a car um, you, you, during Mercury retrograde. Um, however, the positive side of Mercury retrograde is that because Mercury is going backwards, it 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 helps us to remember times in our past when we didn't know how we were going to overcome a particular challenge and that we did. So, the, you know, Mercury retrograde is very good for reviewing, um, it, you know, going over the facts, making sure that everything is clear, um, making sure that all the bills are paid up, uh, you, you know, things of that nature. So that that's, that's, you know, that's your, I mean, for example, um, we also uh, had Uranus was in retrograde up until last week. It was in retrograde to Aries. And so, you know, that can be a little bit of a combative energy. And now that it's, now that Uranus is in Taurus, we should see, um, we should see some major uh, leaps forward in um, all things electronic, but particularly uh, communication once Mercury goes retrograde. I mean, goes direct. I like that. Okay. Because that's when people like, I'm glad that you explained that energy. And it helps clear a lot of, uh, you know, things up in the air for people to get a better understanding. Uh-huh. So thank you so much. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, like when people walk around in fear of, oh, it's retrograde. This is going to happen. I'm not going to sign no contract. I'm not going to mm-hmm. move. I'm not going to this. I'm like, okay. Okay. But I like mm-hmm. the positive part, the, like how you say, you can, something presents itself and you come up with a solution. So I like your way of thinking. Yeah. But that. I told you that before. (laughs) Positive marker among the negative to bring it around to a a beautiful, a beautiful being or beginning or start or whatever it needs to be. So, okay. And okay. What? um, Okay. Another question I have about the equinox. The, Mm -hmm. how did, that come about the equinoxes and how did we know for them? Because I know they're marked during uh, spring, summer, spring, winter, because the clocks go back. So, I, you know, how does that affect the equinox and so forth and why? Just because I think it's just daylight saving time and I thought it was for when the kids back in the day when they were on the farm and they helped out their yeah. family. And they, yeah. uh, they, uh, you know, they had the summertime so that they would have, I guess, more sleep or whatever, so that they could do more in the summer. So they were trying to save time. I don't understand how they came about, and that's something I'll probably research. But I thought that was interesting. Does is that why that uh, it revolves around the equinox that time too? Time going forward and time going back. Well, not not specifically the equinox. It it just has to do with the fact that once we once we pass over uh, 
once we pass over the spring equinox, then the days are getting longer, which is the time. And, and but also specific, also it's not just that the days are getting longer; it's that the temperature is rising day by day, and therefore oh. it's the it's the time that farmers need to put their seeds in the ground to give give them enough time to grow and and mature. Um, now, observation once again, you know, you know, it, it's very um, interesting how our modern culture, with all of its technology, um, is built upon the foundation of the understanding of astronomy slash astrology. Um, and what I, what I mean by that is, is that ancient cultures all over the world had to study the stars in order to know when was the right time to plant. And they, then we know this because they spent an inordinate amount of energy to make monuments and markers that would give them indications of when the solstices and the equinoxes occurred. Um, the spring equinox was always a time of fertilization, uh, and, and therefore people had to get their seeds ready, had to make sure that their soil was ready, and their water supply so it was, it was, it was really a marker um, to go from more of a indoor environment such as winter into an outdoor environment, you know, for for agriculture, which is spring. Okay, that makes sense, especially especially heating up the ground and so forth. So grateful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for expanding on that and getting that down. So. Well, it, it, you know, it was, it was very, very important uh, for these cultures because they, under, they understood that everything occurs in cycles and that there are short cycles such as seasons and then there are longer cycles. And so, you know, being prepared you know, knowing the time to act and the time to, you know, there's always, there's a season for everything. Um, that, you know, to be in tune with the cycles of the seasons and the cycles of the cosmos is what I'm trying to say. That it was important that people remain in tune with these cycles because these understanding these cycles help to um, maintain their existence and their ability to prosper. Okay. Well, if you if you, well if you look at our, if you look at our culture, just to compare it with those ancient cultures, if you look at our culture, we don't we don't necessarily depend on cycles anymore. You know, if we right. want a tomato, we don't wait for spring to come. We either fly it in from somewhere else or grow it artificially inside of you know some environment. Um, you know, people used to, you know, for for forever, people looked up at the sky at night to get, you know, both beauty and awe and also celestial guidance. And now, even if we wanted to, there's so much light pollution in so many places that it's really hard to even see the sky at night. So it's a, it's a totally different, um, it's a totally different 
uh, lifestyle <laughs> um, that we're living, and we, you know, it's it's just fascinating to see, uh, you know, how we how we cope and and uh, what we do to uh, to keep to maintain that that uh, that connection. Okay. Yep. I like. I better. Okay. So we're out of balance of the season sometimes, and that's why you appreciate the fruits and vegetables. They used to have back in the day when I was a kid a season calendar, like when the apples mm-hmm. would come, when the tomatoes would come. Yeah. What was uh, what was it called? I think the farmers al uh, farmers almanac. The farmers almanac. Yes. Okay. It. it it, it, no, it still comes out every year, and I recommend, I mean, I don't care what, um, you know, what you believe in or what your, uh, you know, what your uh, your job or your social status, the Farmer's Almanac is uh, invaluable information. Anybody that uh, values gardening and farming, you know, keeps keep their Farmer's Almanacs because they have they, you know, they not only have a day-by-day record of what phase the moon is in, and therefore when to plant, when to harvest, when to weed, you know, when to water. Um, and but you, you know, they also have helpful um, articles on um, different climatic um, uh, climatic things to watch out for. You know. Um, so there, you know, there might be an article from 40 years ago about what to do if, if your entire garden freezes over. Um, but Farmer's Almanac, uh, you know, the, the you can get them at any Home Depot or any any place that has plants, and it's been published for like 250, you know, going on 300 years. Wow. And I actually, actually, you know, um, the the. Um, it was an African American that that had the most popular farmers' almanac back in the day of the founding fathers. You know, there were quite a few people that had uh, far, farmers' almanacs, um, and that's quite telling in terms of our, what we were just talking about. That uh, people understood that there was a relationship between uh, the heavens, climate, and and their existence. Okay. Wow. That's cool. That's good to know. You know, like I, when I was a kid, like I said, I used to see them or, you know, because my parents were, um, grandparents were gardeners and Mm -hmm. she would talk about what was good time to plant this because it even had little predictions when I was a kid. Right. I thought that was cute. I was like, wow, they're predicting what's going to be good this year. How are they, how are they, how are they doing this? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's what I always wanted to well, so thank well, you. Well, no, this is this is this is absolutely perfect because uh, from one of the questions that somebody from my last appearance was asking about gardening and so I you know, I well, I thought it was most appropriate that I wanted to talk about gardening. Um as also, you know, as that also relates to our, our also personal growth too, um, but specifically gardening. And, you know, this is, 
this is the time, you know, not when it gets warm, you know, at, at, you know, before it actually gets warm enough for stuff to exist. This is the time to start thinking about what is needed um, for our gardening needs this particular year. So what would you think would be a few things that we'd have to consider if we wanted to uh, start a garden? And that, that includes an indoor or outdoor garden. Hello. Hello. Dr. D'Angelo. <laughs> Hello. Hello, I am having a little difficulty. Oh my gosh. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. I'm trying to shoot it from my phone because for some reason my uh, phone is going. Like I said, I'm I'm experiencing some trouble. <laughs> I, I see. Just to get on here is a is a been some trouble. So I have to wait till the computer come up. So I'm um, I'm sorry. That's why I say keep talking. I don't know where you're. In. Talking about after the phone. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, what, what I was saying is that you know, there, right now there are certain things that we should be thinking about in order to start our garden whenever we're able to start. And interestingly, since you brought up the farmer's almanac, one of the things that one of the things that we always think about when it comes to starting a garden is planting in alignment with the moon. And the basic okay. principle, the basic principle is that fruits or vegetables that occur above ground, we want to plant between the new moon and the full moon. And Vegetables that occur below ground, we want to plant from the full moon to the new moon. So 
we would go to our farmer's almanac and it would it would show us those time periods and so that that right there gives us an indication as to the the best time to plant now the plants will will fertilize and grow even if you plant them out of alignment with the moon it's just that they're much more prosperous and uh, abundant if you grow in accordance with the moon. So yes. makes total sense. Okay. Okay. So that's why we get, um, what is it? They did the corn. Well, when I was in Baltimore, they would do a corn at a certain time um, mm-hmm. when they were planting corn and so forth. Yes. Uh, yes. And it would come up. And it was just before, like, uh, maybe be going back to, to school. And the corn mm-hmm. was so sweet. I mean, it'd be so delicious. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. Sure. So, all right. So I'm trying to, okay. I don't know what's going on. So I'm trying not to hear myself twice. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, because I know it's going to be like it, everything came online just a few minutes. Like, okay, now what do you got to do? Mm-hmm. So, okay, um, I'm going to plant myself in the ground. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did put my feet in the grass, and I uh-huh. walked around for 20 minutes. Excellent. 20 minutes. And then I came back in, and I had to dash back out to go get some mail. And, um, yeah, that was pretty much it. Dash back out to go get some mail and everything. And then I started my cheesecake, um, mm-hmm. my uh, cheesecake, my vegan cheesecake anyway. And my uh-huh. I don't know what's going on, so I got a lot of little issues. Someone else like, I'm trying to get through, and I can't get through, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> And I'm not blaming. It's just that these things happen, and I mm-hmm. know electricity sparks. Okay. So, okay. So there's certain plants you plant. You um you plant during the uh, the springtime for them to come up in the summer. Are there certain plants you plant in the summer to grow up and be in the fall as well? Well, generally, generally the um, the plants will, you know, will indicate what the growing season is. So, um, okay, that, that that has two parts to it. Um, the first part, of co- of course, is that different regions of the country have different growing seasons, and. Okay. You could you can you know you can either go online and and look at that, or on the back of most packages of most seeds, they have a little image that shows you you know what the growing season is in your area, and so they'll indicate the first day of growing season. So it might say April first or April fifteenth or May first, or if you're further down south, it might say March fifteenth. Um, and so that tells you that's usually the last day of frost, um, and therefore it's safe to put your your seeds down. 
that that's mm-hmm. that's that's one consideration. Uh, the second consideration is uh, yes, how long the growing season of the fruit or vegetable that you're growing. So, for example, you know, watermelons I think are about a hundred days, and pumpkins are you know at least eighty five days. So you need to get those in the ground fairly soon after the last frost because it takes them longer to grow than most of the other vegetables. You follow what I'm saying? Okay. That makes sense. Wow. Okay. And there's no, like, moonlight, you know, like, mate, I was thinking something about the tomatoes and the carrots, they call them nightshade uh, vegetables. Mm-hmm. Is that because of when they were planted or at night? I know the tomato was sort of dangerous and you wouldn't eat it. Well, the nightshade family, you know, the t- tomatoes are, are, are a member of the nightshade um, family of plants. Mm-hmm. And so people back in Europe knew that the nightshade plant itself um, has uh, poisonous, toxic effects on the human body. So, as yeah, so uh, now, of course, you know, it has healing effects too. But, you know, if you were to make it into tea or something and drink it, you know, it uh, it could make you sick. So, so... As biology, um, the study of plants uh, became more developed, they were able to identify different families of plants. And so they were were able to uh, identify tomatoes as being in the nightshade family. And uh, since since the nightshades that they were familiar with were poisonous, they didn't eat them. For about a hundred years, they had them uh, as uh, decorative plants that they had brought over from the Americas. So you okay. know, I mean, it. You know, I mean, I, I, it just it just tickles me how you know <laughs> certain things that we we consider to be, for example, Italian cuisine is the result of an influx of types of foods from different areas. You know, the tomato had to come from the Americas. You know, that that was not that was not native to uh to uh Italy. Italy. And then you had you had your uh spaghetti which was basically low main that had Marco Polo had brought that mm-hmm. back when from his from his travels to China, so you know spaghetti with tomato sauce, you know, is is sort of as Italian now, but it's you know it's it's really a mixture of of different influences coming into Italy. Right, makes sense. Because we were talking about that when we were um, in. Um, in China, because they were doing the noodles, mm-hmm. and they were like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, we gave." They said, "We gave the Italians the noodles." 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> and now to find out the humble tomato has made it from America to Italy. Now yeah. that is something. <laughs> By merchants we shall go, my brother was saying. We're mm-hmm. serious merchants, weren't we? That goes yes. back to that uh that exchange of merchants, what was they? It was called spice exchange, like that um trying to do my geography where they do the the spice exchange, like when they were doing um the spices and the herbs and, and the uh the people from the village mm-hmm. bringing their goods, yeah. I guess that's what you would yeah. call it. Which is so that's good to know, like, wow. So it make make me wonder, is out is Olive really from Italy? Is what really from Italy? Olive. Oh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, no, well, see, once again, um, Uh-oh. you know, there, there, no, but there's, there's been, you know, there's been, um, there's, there's a couple of things that are happening. One, one is that uh, we're getting more and more archaeological evidence these days as to how different things moved around, and so uh, it's it, you know it's easier for us to trace uh, foods and and you know different uh, different uh, different products. Um, further back, or, or or where they where they actually came from, there was a lot of stuff that was moved around, and or you know something might have originated in one place, but then the climate or environment changed, and therefore people exported them to another place. That happens quite often, you know. So, and so in other words, the jury's still out as to where. The olive originally came from. I like that. I like that. And then also, you know, things things have changed over time as well. You know uh, what? What you know? What something? What something looked like or grew like in one environment? Uh-oh. Okay. Uh-oh. How do I do this? Sorry about that. <laughs> like I told you, it's all coming. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm digging it. I, I'm totally digging it. <laughs> I see. Okay, this is like yeah. <laughs> unreal. But you know what? Keep going. That's all. It's about keep that's, going. That's right. That is correct. So okay, let's. All right, let's begin again. So so. All right, there we go. Now, 
I can hear you, and we're good. Good. So you were explaining before all that. That's all good. You were talking about the olives. I got that and where they came from and how they indigenous to the land in exchange. Um, mm. Uh oh. Oh, Mitchell is Africa. Oh. Someone answered my question for me. They uh-huh. said the Mitchell was of Africa. That's for okay. All right now. Got mm-hmm. some smart nurses mm-hmm. up in here. <laughs> well, well, that's right. That's right. Uh, that's right. Okay. Okay. That that once again that that brings up that that brings up a a, a related topic, and that is that that is that you know it is a it is a. Um, is a mantra of our modern society that you know people came out of Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, we came from Africa, the motherland, and you know, it, you know, if, if all we have to do is read, is read right. the the descriptions that these archaeologists are giving us. And the first thing that we run into is that they're talking about at least seven different migrations that came out of Africa. So this whole this whole notion of, you know, one time, uh, you know, some people got curious as to what was over the hill, uh, <laughs> you know, it, that migrations came thousands of years apart. And came out of Africa. Now, I'm saying all that. I'm not, I'm saying all that to say that when a group of people are going to go from one area, which is the area where they live in, to another area, whether it's known or unknown conditions, there are certain. There's a certain level of civilization and sophistication that has to occur before that move is even possible. You know, okay. you have to, you have to, you have to have the ability to bring supplies with you, to bring food with you, you know, cooking, clothing, medical, you know, some, some, some means of directing yourself, meaning, you know, finding out, you know, North, South, East, West, you know, and traversing different types of, uh, environments, you know, there might be water, rivers, uh, you know, a sea, you know, you can't, in other words, do you, you know, there has to be, uh, there has to be a great level of advancement in order to transplant yourself from one place to another. And so when we talk about, um, when we talk about food and we talk about um, uh, agriculture, you know, because that's, one of, that's supposed to be one of the big markers 
for people going from hunter gatherer civilizations uh, or hunter gatherers into civilizations. Okay. Um, well, you know, when we when we talk about what <clears throat> people had to have had the ability to not just take food with them, but this this notion or this image that we're given uh, that you know, um, for example, corn. You know, corn is in the grass family. Corn is a grass. And mm. what we associated as the as the cob, the corn cob, um, well that looked like, you know, if you could imagine, you know, the you know, the you know, when when the corn has you know, has that thing that shoots up from it and, you know, has little leaves on it. Well the corn was really tiny. You know, it was about the size of a dime. You know, um and we're led to believe that this thing magically, you know, mutated or evolved into the corn that we see today. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> like that? No, you know, no. You see, genetic modification is not new. True. And, and, and... Once again, this shows a high level of sophistication that they were able to to um, biologically change the nature of this thing from a really tiny uh, um, vegetable to the size that we know today. And and I don't mean that we. Americans know today. I mean, we, the human race, in terms mm-hmm. of the the forty or fifty colors of corn that these people developed. They didn't just develop one thing, like the yellow corn that we see, because we just, you know, we, you know, we're growing what can grow the fastest. They developed species and types of corn, you know, that are, you know, multiple multiple species. You know, some, right. you know, some are for cooking, you know, some are for popping, you know, you got popcorn, you know, yep. and so, and so what I, what I'm, what I'm trying to point out is that watching these specials and watching these things on YouTube or wherever, and people talk about the migration out of Africa, um, we had to include in that vision a group of people that had a, a deep agricultural science and understanding of botany and plants. Okay. A deep, a deep understanding. Okay. Now, one of the things that confused me and still got me, um, you know, shaking my head is the fact. And what? <laughs> Only live. No. Yes, yes, sir. You know it. I'm here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm telling you. Okay. All right. 
I get that. That I definitely um, take sophistication. Well, the thing is, because when she bring, since you're bringing up the corn and the the crossbreeding and stuff, I knew the mm-hmm. first carrot was purple, and they said it was in the fourteen mm-hmm. hundred by a French man that crossbred the carrot for it to be orange. Uh-huh. So I was like, wow. So what people say when they want to go back, they don't realize that the carrot that they're eating today was not the carrot that there that was first discovered the heirloom right. doesn't look like even like the tomatoes like you know um yeah. i learned this when i was at culinary school uh about heirloom vegetables and what they actually look like and they said the reason a lot of people is because a lot of people wouldn't eat them because of what they look like and if they cross mm-hmm. them that they did it to make them look more appealing for them to eat and i was like what so i got to see a zebra tomato a purple tomato. It was like, what? That's, uh-huh. a, mm-hmm. that's what they look like. Like, wow. It's not right. that big round thing we did. And they were saying, well, how they crossbred the tomato with the apple. I mean, to me, that was fascinating. Like, wow, that you could do that and crossbreeding um, different things for the insects, not to bother the different plants. Uh, that right. I was fascinated by that. Then um, I think it was in the, early 2000s they were talking about they did they were messing with the tomato and a fish and i don't remember what the what the uh what what the purpose was when i was studying it uh but it was something that they were just experimenting for they were crossbreeding a tomato with a um a fish and a pineapple with something else they were like doing all these crossbreedings and I thought wow we're going to have a lot of hybrids and I'm like well how do we know what's a hybrid and what's original how do we know what heirlooms how do we know that how do you okay 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 sis sis you know our topic is gardening okay so I'm I'm um, I I want us to stay pretty close to what we can do however however I am going to go in um, you know, I'm cli- I'm climbing up on the diving board because I got to go in for another deep dive on this one. Okay. Because <laughs> um, you know you you brought it up, right? You brought it up, so I I you know I have to address it. Okay. Um, you see when. When people say that these hybrids and uh, alternative um, types of food, they, you know, they say, you know, they say that these things were made because people, you know refuse to eat the stuff as nature made it. Okay. Okay. Well, history history shows us that overwhelming motivation for hybridization has nothing to do with people's tastes or interests. It has to do with the manufacturing and the getting 
the fruits and vegetables to market so they can make the most money. Okay. We have to we have to we have to remember that we don't have um people up until recently didn't have the type of storage facilities that we do now. And so you know, they came up with all kinds of clever ways of making jams and preserves, um, you know, making jerky out of meat, you know, meaning slow drying it. There are all manner of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't that people didn't want to eat a particular type of food because it looked a certain way. It was really more that once people went from their smaller situations into uh, cities, and as people became more uh, city dwellers, there was less and less direct contact with agriculture. You weren't okay. growing you weren't you weren't necessarily growing your own food. Um, and you know, now it's all it's going all the way to the other extreme now where we grow hardly anything and depend upon our grocer for not just supply, but health, you know, I mean, um, anyway, anyway, the part, the part of the deep dive has to do with the fact that once again, (laughs) once again, I went to school, uh, because these were the things that I was personally interested in. Um, as a, as a youth, I was always going down south, and people had things I'd never seen before um, because they'd been growing them continually, and so they didn't know they were heirlooms. They just, you know, that that was just what they knew, um, and I wanted to know more about it. And of course, um, what they wanted to interest me in in school was working on the very things I'm talking about in terms of longevity of the product. So they want to grow it as quickly as possible, and they wanted to have the longest possible shelf life, so they could so that it could be sold. And in keeping with that, in keeping with that, I'll give you two examples. This is also why I didn't go to school for this. <laughs> Um, but I'll just give you two brief examples of what I encountered. One was um, people that were working on and actually have now perfected a square tomato so that they can ship it in a box and stack them one on top of the other and you know so they can get the maximum shipping space. The other, the other one was um, was for uh, they wanted to uh they wanted to extend the shelf life of the tomato um by a week. They wanted, you know, seven days longer that it would look good on the shelf. And so 
they looked around in their genome bank and they found a gene that would help this tomato extend its shelf life. And this gene happened to come from a grasshopper. And so they, they, they spliced the gene in. And so now you have the privilege of having a bacon, lettuce, grasshopper, tomato sandwich, you know, these are these are the things that that are, that are being worked on now. You know when when I first went to Kansas, I learned it was the Russian immigrants that had brought the wheat over the wheat that we associated with the plains of you know Iowa and Kansas and Nebraska. Well, that isn't even native to America. You know the, that came over as packing material for these immigrants. And it just so happened that when they arrived in Kansas, it, you know, which have long, very cold, harsh winters, it, it was very familiar to them. It, it reminded them of when they were in Russia. And so they planted this wheat, and it grew. And, of course, uh, th- there were 20,000 varieties of wheat at that time, which was like the 1840s, okay? By the time I got there, which was the 1970s, they had bred, they had um, selected to use only the species that would grow the fastest, and in doing so, and they and so they started breeding out these other species. Um, now, it, this wheat grows incredibly fast compared to the other types of wheat. However, um, it is much more susceptible to different diseases. So if there's a disease that comes, if this particular disease comes up, it could wipe out a, a great majority of this wheat. What I'm trying to say is, is that from the 1840s when these Russians got there until the 1970s, um, they went from 20,000 varieties of wheat to three. Wow, I like that. And so, 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 you know, people can people can tell me all they want to, uh, you know, that these things have to do with, you know, the consumer's uh, taste. But in too many cases, it really comes down to um, the type of system that we have that the farmer's not getting any money, and the the patron, you know, the the customers are paying a lot of money for their food. Um, but the person in the middle, you know, is is getting getting you know getting getting the majority of the profit, and um, because things are sold so far away from us, you know, um, they're having to use all kinds of systems in order to get to get the food to us before it spoils, you know. That makes sense. And that's, I like. That. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, um, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody. Um, this is really about what, what we need. This is about what we need to do. And, okay. And so, and so, in keeping with that, in keeping with that, um, one of the, one of the, as I said last week, one of the prime things 
that I learned from my time in the Midwest is, you know, your product, you know, what, 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 what we're trying to grow, no matter what it is, the nutritional value and the appearance of that food is only as good as the seed it comes from. So, um, you know, picking our seeds and taking taking care of our seeds is a primary function that we need to consider. Uh, You know, start off with whatever you have, whatever you have available to you, because, you know, we can always – we we start off with whatever we have because we can we can always run into um, more and better down the road. Um, okay. There are lots of there are lots of companies that sell heirloom seeds, and there's probably somebody in our immediate family or extended family that has a farm somewhere that's growing stuff. They don't even think of them as heirloom seeds. They just you know they've just been growing them. Um, but anyway, the point is is to spend time researching and finding out, um, you know, the organic nature of our seeds, um, you know, where they come from, and, you know, what their yield is, okay? And so, you know, I might look in, I might look online and they say, you know, this plant will yield, you know, 100 tomatoes per plant, and it takes 70 days to grow, it's been grown organically for 10 years. You know, everything sounds good. Okay. Now, when we get the seeds, uh, this is, this is um, not only will we get to add the Zazu to it, but we now address many of the questions that you brought up just a few minutes ago, and I, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. What is this Zazu, you know, what is this magic, what is this wizardry that we're going to do um, with our seeds? Well, for one thing, uh, we must consider the fact that the seed is breathing, Life does not come from non-life. Life comes from life. And therefore, this is a living, breathing organism. You know, we, you know, we tend to think of plants as being, you know, not as evolved as us. And, um, you know, uh, you know, they don't have feelings, uh, But to the matter is, uh, the the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the plants are taking in two units of oxygen and letting off three units of carbon, um, carbon dioxide. They are breathing. And so one of the things that is essential for plant life to um, to grow is the magnetic field of the earth. Therefore, we're going to give our we're going to give our seeds a little jump start 
by giving them a dose of magnetic energy before we even put them in the ground. And we do this very simply by getting a differentiated magnet. And a differentiated magnet just simply means a magnet that we purchase from somewhere that tells us which is the North Pole and which is the South Pole. Now, traditionally, um, when we were in school, they always had those magnets that were two colors, red and blue. And that's because since the beginning of um, investigation of the Earth, we have described um, the North Pole magnet as having blue uh, energy and the South Pole magnet is at the at South Pole is having um, red energy. And in fact, when we finally got microscopes sophisticated enough to look at the magnetic field, it was both a shock and a pleasant surprise that uh, the North Pole looks blue and the South Pole looks red. Anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to get this differentiated magnet. And a lot of times now, if we go to the store, there'll be a magnet, a bar magnet, and it'll be blue on one end and it'll be red on the other end. But then you look at the magnet and the blue side has an S on it, which means south, and the red has a N, which is for north. And that's the opposite of what we've learned. Well, the reason why it has the opposite is because in electronics, they determine North Pole and South Pole to be the opposite in, in nature. Anyway, if you get a bar magnet and it has the blue and the red color on it, that's what you pay attention to is the color, not the N and the S on it. And so, you you know, once you have... Once you have that magnet and you know which is the South Pole, then you want to get several other magnets and, you know, put the magnet up to the South Pole. If it clicks on, you know, that's the opposite pole. If it, if it repels, then you know that's the South Side. And you want, to, you want to make a little circle where all the magnets are, the South Pole is, are all facing inward, and then you want to introduce your seeds into that circle. And let them sit there for 24 hours. You know, that's it. That's all you got to do. You know, you don't have to, you know, play any music or water them. Or I mean, you're not watering them. But, you know, you, you just leave them alone for 24 hours. And lo and behold, one of the things that this magnetic field is going to do, it's, it, it is it is going to activate the growth pattern that is in that seed. And and so and so the, the the net result is that more of the seeds will germinate with a magnetic treatment than without. Um on the package of most plants, most seeds, they will give you a percentage uh, of how many seeds they guarantee will germinate. And with this magnetic treatment, 
you are guaranteed to have a much higher percentage than the one that they give you. Not only will more of these seeds germinate, but they will grow quicker than non-treated seeds. They will mature sooner, and they will bear more fruits or vegetables. Now, suppose, suppose, you know, you're going to Home Depot, you're going to some nursery, and the seeds are already, you know, the seeds have already um, been germinated. They're in a little pot, okay? Well, we're very fortunate that, you know, uh, nature is, um, you know, nature is extremely creative. And so she allows us to magnetize the water that we're growing our plants with. And that's easy enough. You just take either your hose or your watering can and you slap a couple of magnets on the hose or on the neck of the watering thing, you know, you has to be close enough that the field is going through the holes or the or the can, and you know, touching the magnetic field on the other side. So, you know, if, if it's half an inch or or um, if it's half an inch or closer, then two magnets opposite the other should work. If it's more than half an inch, then you just make a circle of magnets around the hose. But either way, you're magnetizing that water to be South Pole, and therefore your plants will be healthier um, and will also have the ability to create its own pesticide. That is cool. I like that. <laughs> The wonders of nature and the energy is amazing. It is astounding each and every time. Okay, well here's here's a, here's another here's another little um, here's another little thing, and that is that um, every plant and every tree has, in science, what we call a photovoltaic cell. Um, you know. You know, us ordinary people, you know, we would just say there's a um, a light switch that turns on the plant for daytime. You know, just like you know, just like we have a a light in our backyard that's a you know light that shines all night. You know, the you know to illustrate you know parking garage or whatever. And then there's a little device on it that you know when the sun comes up, Timer. hits that device. Yeah, it, it, and it tells it to you know to turn off. Well, the plants have something just like that. Only it's to turn, or it's to change over from the breathing in oxygen cycle to letting off oxygen cycle. Mm. Okay, okay, and naturally, you know, because of you know, you know, however many billions of years of evolution, you know, all these plants, their photovoltaic cell is on the east side because that's where the sun comes up. You know, it's saying, hey, it's time for daytime. Now, one of the things that we can do to ensure greater transplantation, um, because transplanting, your, you know, your plants get stressed. Our, not your, our plants get stressed when we transplant them. You know, we're taking them from one environment with one type of um, bacteriological um, 
uh, the culture to another, um, uprooting it. You know, usually we don't we usually don't water it enough before we transplant. So the so the plant droops over a lot of times. You know, just goes through a recovery period. Well, one of the things that we can do about transplantation is we can find out um, where that photovoltaic cell is. Okay, now. Uh, we, when I'm demonstrating this to people, I usually use my pendulum. And first I get my yes or no answer from my pendulum. And then after I establish that, then I go around all four sides of the plant and I ask which side is the east side. And then eventually, um, I'll find out which is the east side. And when I take it home, to transplant it, I plant that side facing east, and you know that guarantees that guarantees a much higher rate of transplantation. Um, and even plants that we have at home in, in our homes sometimes are not orientated to their natural east, and when we reorientate them, they grow much better with no different water, no different lighting, you know, it just, it's, just, it's just the way that nature has worked for a very long time. Wow. Like so, so, you see, you know, there are, there's always ways of balancing things out. You know, no matter what the conditions, no matter what the genetic modification, you know, um, there's no, um, there's no, you know, there's always, there's always at least one, if not multiple ways of bringing, bringing things up to speed. And so that, that brings me to the part of your conversation where you talked about, you know, with all of these biological mixtures and now adding on um, genetic other things into our growing population. You know, how do we know what's real? How do we know what's safe? You know, you know, what do uh-huh. we do? Well, well, see, once again, um, your, your pyramid uh, works by combining a magnetic field, usually the magnetic field of the Earth, and what is known as cosmic background radiation, um, something that was created, you know, right after the Big Bang and is everywhere in the universe. So, in other words, it's a wedding between a terrestrial force and a cosmic force. And since this cosmic force has been in the universe since the beginning, it pretty much has uh, it has a foundational quality about it. In, in other words, how we would say it as humans is it has memory. And so therefore, between the combination of exposing our plants to the magnetism of the pyramid and the cosmic background radiation that goes into the pyramid, 
that which was originally programmed into the seed of that plant will be reproduced. That which was not in the original programming of that plant will not be reproduced. Thus, it's natural selection by vibration. It's not magic. It's not voodoo. It's the fact that says, you know, everybody that's on this guest list can come into the party. Oh, you're not on the guest list? You just got to town? You looking for some action? Not here, son. (laughs) It's very basic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Now, now see, once, once again, this is really, this is really the um, 21st century challenge. The 21st century challenge is not whether pyramid energy or crystal energy is a real thing, okay? That people can determine and will determine for themselves. Right. You know, I'm not going to sit here and do a debate uh uh, you know, controversy, yada, yada, you know, please, boring, snooze. <laughs> the 21st century challenge is what do we do about all the funked up things that that are in our, in, in our surroundings? You know, in other words, you know, what do I do about the stuff that's in the food? What do I do about, you know, purifying the air in my environment? What do I do about replacing plastic in my daily, you know, um, consumption and and intake? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we we need to figure that out for ourselves as well as for other people. You know, if we find something that works for us, other people will use it too. Um, And, and, and I'm saying this to say that uh, it's going to be real easy because right now we can go to the grocery store and I walk into the grocery store and they have a little section in the produce department where they are proud of telling me that these potatoes are genetically modified and will not sprout. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody from our generation knows that if you leave the potato long enough in that closet, in that bag, you know, <laughs> you come in, this it looks like a monster movie. There's stuff growing in that thing, you know, growing up, in, and it's growing in darkness, ain't it? Okay, yeah, scary as hell, first time you see that. <laughs> and so, and so, and so, okay, like I said, this is the challenge. This is the challenge of the 21st century, you know, because if and when I take that potato home and I place it inside my pyramid and it starts to sprout, I now know mm-hmm. that that genetic modification is not the king of the hill. Um, okay. And I, and I also know that there's something right here right now can be used to counteract a lot of this stuff. That's the challenge. Okay. Okay. 
Now, I don't care whether you use the greatest electronic sophisticated thing that zaps it with, you know, 50,000 volts of electricity, you know, or if you're using three bare-chested women from Tahiti who are doing chanting. I don't care what your technology is, okay? (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. But what but what I do care about what I do care about is, you know, uh, are we using more energy to repair stuff than it take the it did it took to make that thing, you know? Um for example, you know, I know many people that tell me that they take their vegetables and they take and they soak them in vinegar, they soak them in sea salt, you know, and it takes an hour and then they got to scrub them off and they got to wash them off with the water. Then they got to wash them off with different type of water to get the first type of water off. You know, no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> no, we, you know, you know, it, you know, it, it, there are, there are always solutions that um, take less toil and still give us the same results. So that's what we're looking for. Um, And once again, you know, let's go back to our example about planting with the moon. Right. You know, you know, you know, I can, I can, I can buy a whole bunch of uh, potatoes and cut the eyes off. You know, you know, because that's a lot of work. I mean, I don't mean a lot of work, but I mean, say I cut a hundred eyes off. You know, so, uh, you know, that might take me a couple of hours, and then I got to soak them in the water and whatever. And then, you know, so, so my point is, I took the time to go to the store, get the potatoes, bring them home, cut off the eyes, which is the part that's going to grow. You know, and then. I'm not going to pay attention to what the moon sign is, even harder for my plants to you know, survive and thrive. No, I'm going to work in, al- in alignment with nature, and together nature is going to do the most of the work anyway. You know, once that farmer puts that seed in the ground, it's not like he's out there every day, you know, giving them, you know, coaching lessons. No. So, you know, we we find that when we work with nature, that things are much easier and solutions come to us. Nature actually will either tell us or show us what can be done. Now, um, of course, when we're talking about uh, people that live in more urban environments, uh, of course, you know, uh, you know, land, real estate is becoming much more expensive. At the same time, it's becoming much more polluted. So in some ways, it, it might be a blessing that we're starting our growing indoors. And, you know, there are endless amounts of containers that can be used for growing stuff indoors. If you have a windowsill or a wall that, you know, you get sunlight in, you know, a couple of hours a day, you can grow stuff. You can grow herbs. Um, 
you know, I mean, it's it's not it's not like you know you know what young people call repurposing. You know, I grew up all my life seeing coffee cans and Crisco cans that had dirt in it that was growing something. You know, right there in the kitchen. Now, of course, you know, also at the time that I was growing up, you know, most kitchens had a window in it. You know, nowadays these newfangled apartments don't even have a window in it, and 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 also you don't get circulation in the kitchen. That's well, that's all another story. Um, and so what I'm saying is is that we can also start a very small composting thing right in our own home. We can get a, we can get a very small, um, you know. Uh, Waste can and start start you know cutting up our our you know our, our after we make our vegetables you know whatever's left over we can just open that can and put that in there and you know put some extra dirt in there you can buy earthworms from anywhere and you stir that stuff up you know it's going to heat up of course you know and that the, you know that helps to break down the stuff uh, of course you know me and my mother. We got a garbage can, and uh, we sealed up the lid on the top and cut a hole in the side that we put the vegetables in, you know, that we could close. And then we spun that thing just like a, just like a crisper, you know. We just turn it like the lottery thing, and wow. uh, you know, we and we had compost all the time, you know. So we were making our we were we were making our own dirt for you know in the kitchen. You know, to put in the cans in the kitchen, to grow the herbs <laughs> in the kitchen. You know, <laughs> um, you know, you know, a great a great deal of these things, a great deal of these things have to do with habit. You know, we've accumulated certain habits. You know, right now, we go to the corner store or the store on the way home. You know, we know where all the stuff is. You know, and it's just a matter it's just a matter of getting used to changing our habits little by little so that we're not just buying stuff from the store, but that we're, you know, clipping it off from the plant right there. You know, that's you know, the last time I checked with the animals, I you know, I did a survey with the birds and the insects and the four leggeds, you know, and they all said to me, you know, uh, if it comes in a wrapper that looks like a peel or the shell of a nut, then that's fresh. You know, the animals eat the food fresh. Right. And it would behoove us to eat you know, like, you know, I'm not talking about people, you know, going all, you know, back to the land type energy. But I am saying, you know, if I'm eating 5% fresh food, then I can work on a goal of 10%. Okay. And the thing is not, it's not a contest. It's really to observe if that change, if that ratio, if that percentage, if I'm not eating, you know, 5% more live food, am I feeling any different? 
is my thinking different? Is my physical body different? Is my bowel movement different? And if the answer is yes, then it might be a curious experiment to see what a greater percentage, how that would affect me and living and my connection with the universe. Also, we we have to take into consideration um, uh, cosmic energy. And what I mean by that is that, and we talked about this, that most of the most of the things that are um, available for consumption that we call food, um, most of most of that stuff, for one reason or another, is um, is considered to be a commodity that must be raised, processed, and um, distributed as quickly as possible. So. Let's take our chickens, for example. Now, right now, your average chicken, um, well, not your average chicken, but there are many chickens that never touch the ground. They are in a cage and... It's so crowded that sometimes they can't even turn around. They don't get they don't get to peck and search out those stones that the chicken eats. But I was talking about commodity and time. And in that regard, the standard for raising a chicken from a chick three one days. When I first started studying agronomy and farming, the standard for raising a chicken was a hundred and two days. cosmic standpoint those chickens were getting twice as much sunlight and starlight and cosmic information as these modern chickens are thus it can only pass on a certain percentage to the people who are consuming it. Okay. Well, I mean, we wouldn't want to, we wouldn't want to rush the person that's making our car. Or our dress or anything else. We want them to take the time (laughs) so we know that it's, Because it's got all this stuff in it, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) I like that. All right. All I'm 
saying all I'm saying is what we get out of something is what we put into it. So if I'm putting in if I'm putting in five hours into something, then I'm getting five hours out. If I'm putting in 20 hours into something, then I'm getting more than 20 hours out. And I know this goes against the grain of our modern society, but everything else in the universe takes its time in the in the combination and the build-up of stuff, and therefore it takes that amount of time for it to be worn down. And, you know, as we talked about, as we talked about, you know, um, in the last week or so, a uh, hundred, if, if, if there was a, there was a, some kind of calamity and all the humans disappeared on earth, most of the buildings that we have on most of the buildings that we built in the last hundred years would not be here a hundred years from now. You know, in other words, because they were made as quickly as possible, then they will fall apart quickly. Whereas these ancient structures that people constructed, and in the case of Mexico, that they constructed and then constructed something on top of that 50 years later, and then another 50 years later, something on top of that. And so, you know, you go to you go to one of these sites, and they'll tell you that you're looking at 250, 300 years worth of construction, okay? Now, that building will be here 100 years from now, and will be here, here 10,000 years from now. And I would tend to think that, you know, we should look at food and energization in that same manner, that that which will sustain me has itself needed to be sustained. That's cool. A lot of energy, though. Oh, yeah. (laughs) In a good way. Okay, now, 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 what, now, what, you know, as as a farmer, because you know we're all going to be farmers soon. Um, what what role do you think the farmers play in all of this? A major role because they're helping people get back and guiding them to back to 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 actually putting your hand in the soil first of all, and realizing mm-hmm. where food come from and educating them because we are forgotten. Everything don't mm-hmm. jump off in a supermarket and jump in your basket and jump in your mouth because we've forgotten that. So that's number one is they're re-educating mm-hmm. and showing people how important being close to your source meaning the soil and putting your hands right. in and connecting with it mm-hmm. and planning. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it's, it's that's a to me, very important because we've we've kind of lost that. When I was a mm-hmm. kid, we went to the farm and actually visited a farm and seen how it works and the, the crops. Yes. Well, what they call crops back then? But, you know, just yeah. the vegetable patches. Like, we did, even did the pumpkin patch, if you know what I mean? Like, the squashes mm-hmm. and the, 
pumpkins during the fall and the apples, apple pickings during mm-hmm. that, like the apple trees. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, during a certain time, even new, what is it, the black, blue blackberries? Or yeah. not the, uh-huh. They have black, uh, blackberries and the blueberry bush. Yes. So, I think that's very important for the farmer to show, but also getting, going and knowing your farmer has always been my thing. Know your farmer where your food comes that's, from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I like what we were talking about, the Victoria Garden Program, about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that project. Um, it's, I haven't seen that it's closed down or anything, but that's something that me might, might want to think about, too. Mm-hmm. But I um, like the idea of which you were talking about, the compost in the kitchen with the worms, mm-hmm. actually saving and that also is recyclable in many ways and getting close back to nature. Everything is reusable from the bags to the everything. You know, it, it has yep. a point. Yep. It can be, break, be broken down and be biodegradable mm-hmm. and reused, which is really a switch um, that we haven't been doing over the years. So we'll get better soil and the soil be much more nutrient because it comes from the vegetable. It's breaking down and the earthworms and everything in there and the heat in itself from being in that container also Mm -hmm. good good nutrients as well. So Mm -hmm. um, they teach, we were learning about that, like a compost They were giving people when we lived in Hawaii compost uh, bins to actually uh, learn to do permaculture so we could get close back to the land because they said we've lost our mm-hmm. way too. So mm-hmm. we learned a little bit, you know, and they were actually giving out, if you went to the class, you got you got worms. You got a a, comp, a little bucket, um, a shovel, earthworms, mm-hmm. and um, paper. Um, and they were telling people to put uh, like brown paper bags in there, like nothing with ink. In in mm-hmm. the, uh, the the bend yeah. and put a lot of vegetables and everything is close to nature. So I'm just like, wow, he could have got it, got a lesson from you from what you were talking. So that's amazing, amazing. And it doesn't seem like it would take a lot. It that doesn't take a lot to take your vegetables instead of putting it down the garbage disposal. Just put right. it in a trash can and just mm-hmm. bring it over, mm-hmm. turn it over. Um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, what did she do? She turned the the can over every two to three days. Like they yeah. would top it over one way and top it over another way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was it. I mean, for that, for, for me from Hawaii, but I like that. But the farm, the farmer being part of our life again, which is a wonderful thing. But also I like the fact of growing my own food and you don't have to have a, like you said, a big land, but you can grow it in your own place of where you live in, which is really well, good. Uh, well, well, you know, I said that we're all farmers. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I meant by that is farming is the type of occupation that is best served 
when one farmer shares something with another farmer. Mm. And 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 what I what I'm referring to is both produce and information. Okay. Okay. I you know in other words in other words the word that comes to mind is network. Now, here in New York, at the end of the summer, it's a common thing for me to hear people say, I got so many squash. What am I going to do with all this squash? I made soup. I made spaghetti. What am I going to do with all this squash? Okay. Well, if we had a network, then some people are growing squash. Some people are growing tomatoes. Some people are growing lettuce. And, of course, this works out because not everybody has the same conditions to grow everything. Some some people have a shady backyard. Some people only get a window. Some people have a full backyard. So by networking, you know, and it's, it's even easier now than when I did it, you know, all you do, we have some place online, you know, it, it, you know, at the beginning of the week, we type in what our excess vegetables are. Boom. You know, uh, we could even have a common meeting place. Everybody brings their stuff. People take what they need, you know, like that. Um, and networking in terms of information is invaluable. You know, I might take three, four, five years to find a soil that has all the conditions I'm looking for. Another person has worked with the soil a couple of years and found, you know, it's bug-free, it's organic, whatever. He tells me about it, boom, now we both benefit. Um, you know, one of the things that my mother used to do, you know, at the bottom of the tomato plant, there's a little thing that grows out called a sucker. And, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a, a branch um it's you know it's just like a, a little tomato plant that's growing out the side of the, of the tomato, and farmers traditionally cut those off. You know they they just cut them off and toss them. And my mother used to say, "Well, we're gonna wait till the till the plant with the tomato plant has those little flowers." And I'm like, "Okay." So we wait till it has the flowers, and then she cut the sucker off. But instead of throwing it away, she'd replant it in the ground. And she'd say, now, that plant is already mature enough to start, you know, giving off tomatoes. Mm. You don't have to grow. Okay. And sure enough, like a couple of weeks later, it had grown to about a foot. But it's, it's, so it's only, the other plant is four feet tall. This one's a foot tall. It's already got tomatoes. And, uh, you know, so... You know, a lot, a, a great deal, a great deal of so-called food shortage is really just a habit, cultural culture, 
has taken on in a and to a great degree because of the way that all the food is is um you know is under these um oh, what's it called um you know what well, the food is you know the food has a market value okay you know and so and so for example you know you know every year we leave a hundred million um pounds of food in the fields. It just wow. rots there. Okay. Um <laughs> now wow, you know true. now see no one can tell me that we can't change our habits and rescue more of that food. You just can't tell me that. Okay. You know? I'd I'd be typing with the three monkeys that can write the Shakespearean play, you know, I before I would believe that. So <laughs> I'm over here trying not to laugh. <laughs> Getting hard. Mm-hmm. Uh and um and then of course and then of course, you know, you know there there are other aspects that once once we get into growing the food and then we have to deal with preserving the food but also we have to think in terms of you know how we can serve how we consume the food now uh you know when i went down to chinatown and i picked out an apple and the vendor told me, he says, oh, apple, golden in morning, silver at noon, and copper in the evening. Not really. Not really. Oh, really? Who said that? Hello? That's, that's my That's my son. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. You don't even realize I was on radio. <laughs> uh-huh. So, well, <laughs> well, what 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 the Chinese gentleman was talking about? He was talking about um, he he didn't know these words, but what he was talking about is the rate at which the body uh, 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 assimilates fructose and. Uh, Fructose assimilated in the morning gives you as much energy as a cup of coffee. Fructose at noon gives you energy, but not that much. And, you know, eating that same apple in the evening will give you the least amount of energy. So it's not just a matter of what we're eating, but when we're eating it and how we're eating it. And so we have to, we, you know, and, and all I'm saying is, we have to look at everything we've been told, not just I'm going to go vegan, you know, um, you know, yes, yes, that's a good thing. Nobody's debating that. However, you know, we have to, we have to see all the parts that are involved and see what we can do about making all of those different things efficient, you know, um, you know, really, we should think of we should think of the system that we have as temporary until we can get back to fresh food. 
you know, that this is, this is we're just eating like this because we got to, you know. But, you know, as soon as we possibly can, you know, we should be, uh, um, you know, know, knowing where our food comes from, uh, you know, um, being involved in being involved with the with the farmer, you know, um, you know, it, you know, you know, uh, the equipment that a lot of these people have to get and the the rules and regulations that they have to be under, you know, it's it's a tremendous amount of, um, it, it, you know, it's a tremendous burden. Um, there's a lot of restrictions. That if, for example, um, I know in Vermont there are people that go to their local farmer and they give them money at this time of year. So they might give them $100, $500. And that enables that farmer to not be as dependent on a bank loan. You know, he can buy his seeds. He can buy the seeds he wants because, you know, you know the story. You know, you get the bank loan, you got to buy the stuff that they recommend. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that story. It's the oldest story in the world. Nothing new, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not faulting anybody. But when you have that kind of one-on-one relationship, you know, and then also, you know, it's not, it's not like a political bribe. But you can say you can say to your farmer, you know, have you ever thought about growing, uh, you know, purple broccoli? You know, and they'll either tell you, they'll either say yes, I thought about it, or no, this and that. Or I can, you know, but you have a dialogue now, you know. Right. And and as I and as I said before, if if as farmers, if we're networking, then he or she is going to say, no, I don't do that, but. I know a doctor over there in Florida that does. See, the network will take care of these things. Because, you know, everybody is going to grow what, you know, they can or what they like to grow, you know. Now, I have a story, you know, I am not I am not a big fan of the cult of personality, okay. <laughs> um, you know, anyway, but there are certain experiences that I've had that I, that I find valuable for passing on. And one of them is uh, that a friend of mine was describing a type of grass that only grows on one side of one mountain in America. And so naturally people are, curious about this thing because it is a very unique plant. And uh, and so eventually while he was passing this spot one day there was a big gust of wind and a whole bunch of the seeds blew over into the road. Now this is significant because it's against the law to go and pick those seeds because this plant is so unique. And but he knew that this was his one opportunity, so he he gathered up a bunch of them and sent them to me because he wanted me to look at them. 
you know, knowing that I'd, you know, been gardening all my life. And I looked at them. They looked very fascinating. And then I said, okay, time to go into the lab. And so I took some of these seeds and I took them outside into my garden with my pyramid and I planted them and then sent him a picture of when they were growing. Because according to the scientists, these seeds won't grow anywhere but that one location. The pyramid is always helping me to stretch beyond what I think or have been told are the limitations. talk about our trees for a second. Okay. Um, uh, you know, this, this idea just jumped into my head, but, you know, I think that each of us should ad- adopt a tree that's either on our block or in our neighborhood. Okay. And I say this, I say this because the climate is changing, and therefore, with these changes, we see the environment responding. What I mean by that is there are insects and diseases that weren't able to take hold previously because we had longer winters or deeper snows. Um, We had um, sometimes uh, we had, we had insects in the food chain that kept the predators down. So, whether it's one or a combination of those things, the trees are now facing um, temperatures that they never faced before. They're facing diseases that they never faced before. Um, And so if we just adopt one tree and make sure that that tree is taken care of, you know, on a super hot day, don't just say the city should do it, but just take some water over. And, you know, water the tree. Of course, this has selfish reasons. Or to put it another way, we are the first 
recipients, we're the beneficiaries of taking care of that tree. How so? Because one of the things we know is that trees, because they consume so much water during the day, help to regulate the temperature in their immediate surroundings. They have... A project in Paris, France, to plant millions of trees because they have measured that the neighborhoods that have more trees use less air conditioning. And cutting down a tree can raise the temperature of your block by five degrees almost instantly. Your trees supply nesting areas for birds, which will eat negative insects. The roots will keep the ground more solid to prevent floods and landslides. And I could go on and on, but taking care of the trees is part of taking care of us. And a lot of them live a lot longer than we do, so they have something to tell us and possibly teach us. Well, I put that on the page. I told people we could, they should drop a, adopt one tree. Mm-hmm. That's okay. almost like a, Go ahead. Okay. Do we have any questions? Oh, does anybody have any questions? If you do, press one. If you do. Um, I was going to ask you about the redwood trees, about the being a, oh, <laughs> somebody got a question. Okay. All right. Hold on. Let's go on. Let me save this before. Okay. Hello? Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Uh-oh, I hear a lot in the okay. background. Though. Now, um, Dr. Lester Love, I listened to you last week, and I had a question for you, so I got to ask you this week. <laughs> okay. I wanted to know what you thought about the crystals in the pineal gland. How do we work that? How does that, you know, interact with the crystals outside of ourselves that we have, you know, since we have crystals inside of ourselves? How, mm-hmm. what kind of effect or how are we supposed to use that? That's I wanted to know what you thought about that. Oh, excellent. Okay. Uh, well, the sister... Dr. D'Angelo had mentioned at the time that we're talking that a, you know, part of our mission in this lifetime is to decalcify our pineal gland. Uh, And, of course, you can either go online or uh, even talk uh, to the doctor about different methods of purifying the pineal gland. Um, my mission is to describe what 
happens once the pineal gland has been decalcified, or in other words, what is what is its prime functioning, and its prime functioning has to do with um, what in science we call um, morphic resonance or um, or in metaphysics it's what we call the key fits the lo- the key fits the lock. Okay, now let me explain what that means. Um, very simply, that that which we are looking for is looking for us, and we call that divine intention. And the crystals within our bodies are by the by the frequency that they have, the shape that they have. Okay. That's that's the that's the morphic part, the, the shape. Each shape, by its definition, by definition I don't mean the word in the dictionary. I mean by the way it is defined, has a frequency. It acts as a beacon that's sending out a signal, and it's looking for a type of nutrition that will come and uh, answer that beacon. Uh, so what we do is we first of all write an intention that says may all um, may my pineal gland help to activate all of the crystals within my body and those frequencies which will keep them at their maximum efficiency come to them with effortlessness and joy and then, of course, we um, we work on waiting to receive whatever whatever energies or information comes to us. Uh, okay, now that that that's the, that's the uh, so-called metaphysical part. Um, as far as physical activities are concerned. As far as physical activities are concerned, uh, well, there's there's a few things I would recommend. One is on a regular basis, go to some form of moving water that's outside, such as a waterfall, ocean, lakes, streams, and sit there for a minimum of 20 minutes. Um, moving water greatly helps with um, both the pineal gland, which is the um, organ that sends out the command, and the skin, which, um, as we said last week, acts as antennas both to send out the signal and to receive any incoming. Any incoming. The, the second thing I would say is fast from electronics at least once a month. Um, and by fast, I mean, you know, don't turn off your TV or your uh, computer, your Wi-Fi. Unplug it. Completely detach from electronics. Um, this 
also helps with um, keeping the, the pineal gland not just decalcified, but also training us to listen and to learn how to interpret the signals that are coming in. Now, just remember, we are not cleaning the pineal gland so that these signals will come to us. These signals are coming to us all the time. It's a matter of us hearing it and knowing how to interpret properly. That's, that's the main thing. So um, thirdly, uh, spending time all one, or as we say in English, alone. Uh, Silent. Spending time alone helps us to get into the state of deep listening. Um, You know, now what's deep listening? If I'm sitting in my chair and I close my eyes, usually I start to hear the cars that are racing by outside. And then as I go along, then I might hear the hum of the refrigerator. But then some kind of polarity shift happens. And now I'm listening, which means that I'm not just using my ears, but I'm using my whole body. And by listening, I'm also paying attention to what the reaction is when I'm hearing and listening to these, um, in most cases, inner tones. Um, The third thing, oh, oh, also in terms of your waterfalls and your moving water, another high source of negative ions is your pine tree or walking through a forest or forested area. Um, next is chanting and or going yes. to sound bath. Chanting yes. and or going to sound bath. Okay, the sound bath and the chanting, um, especially using the chant Om. Om, uh, not only in in the um, mouth cavity are all five vowels being made as you, as we say Om. Uh, but all the frequencies um, come out during OM. Same thing with the sound bath, that you're getting all the frequencies. You hit a gong, it's got all the frequencies, both the audible ones and the non-audible ones. And in that, in that uh, collection of those frequencies are the frequencies that the crystals inside of our bodies need. The interesting thing about this receptivity is they will only take in the frequencies they need. They will not take in other frequencies. So we can't overdose them. We can't overload them. You know, the stuff won't go to the wrong address. You know, it's a natural selection. So chanting and or sound baths are also something that will greatly help the pineal gland. Wow. Right. I also have one more question. All right. What's, I, what's your name? Well, I, I, you know what? I really like um, 
you know, listening to your point of view and stuff, and you actually give me some confirmation about different um, things that I've been doing. Like when you just said the trees, because that's what I do. It's like a tree outside my house, and I go up to mm-hmm. that tree, and I sit with that tree, and that that helps my energy, you know, become aligned with my chakras and stuff. That's that helps right. that energy. And um, yes. whenever I drive through, like, a grove of trees or something, you know, I feel that energy, like, settling me or whatever. Yes. And, yes. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, what do you think about when you um, take, like, okay, say if I was to boil a herb, okay, mm-hmm. like I'm mm-hmm. going to boil some rosemary, and then I'm going to pour that rosemary over a crystal. Um, Are you going to verify for me that that crystal, I'm asking you, is that crystal going to actually take on the properties of the herb? Okay. My answer answer to that is... um, If you're if you're programming the crystal to take on the properties of that herb, of that herb tea, or if it's your intention, in other words, if you're not programming it, but you just you know like that's your that's your intention that you want that crystal to take on those properties, then absolutely it will. Um, what I was going to say is that um, Placing that crystal into your water before you boil it, the water takes on the property of the crystal. So okay. You, so you can work that. You can you know, and then you got the you got the property of the crystal in the water, um, and the vibration of the tea as well. But yes, yes, the crystal can take on the the vibration of the tea. Absolutely. All right. Okay. I just I wanted to see what you thought about that, and I appreciate your perspective. It gives it it helps me too, because I can look through your lens and actually, like I said, get some confirmation on different things that yes. I've actually you know put to use for myself or for different clients that I have. But oh, yeah, and that, what is your first name? My first name is Deontay. Okay. Um, have you ever have you ever have you ever put your crystals in your bathtub water before you took a bath? No, I've never done that. Well, that's what I'm that's what I'm being told to tell you is to run the water run the water about halfway up, and then place whatever crystals you want to want to energize you in the water. Let the water sit. Let the water sit for at least half an hour. Then take the crystals out and then run just hot water in there, you know, because it'll, you know, it'll warm up the water. And then you soak in that water, and it's it's going to imbue your body and help with your pineal gland, you know, with the energy of those crystals. All right, I like that. And then another thing that you say about the water, because you mm-hmm. kind of explained something to me of why. You know, we use the cup of water, like, on our ancestor table, too. Because mm-hmm. I've always looked at the pineal gland as, like, an antenna 
or, mm-hmm. you know, something too that you use to tune in to subtle energies. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, that's helping when you put the cups of water on your ancestor table or whatever. That is the thing that is being done to actually, you know, get that contact with them or whatever. So right. thank you for answering that. That was really smooth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Oh, okay, we'll see. Once again, you know, once again, it, it, you know, it always tickles me. It always tickles me, me personally, when I hear people saying, have these things been scientifically tested? Or I wish somebody would scientifically test these things. Okay, well, there is a movie many years ago called The Mummy, you know, with Boris Karloff, the original one. And in the movie, there is an English family that comes uh, to Egypt, and he eventually convinces this young lady to come into this tomb. And when she gets into the tomb, there's a giant pool of water. I mean, it's not a pool, but a, a giant fountain of water. It's about three feet across. And he says, you know, look into the water. And she looks into the water, and she sees a past life where she and this, you know, former guy had been together, okay? The the point the point I'm making is that this is a process known as scrying. Scrying. Ah. It's, like it's like crying with an S on it. And scrying has been around for thousands of years that, you know, having a pool of water gives us the ability to see into the past and, the, and to contact our ancestors. Right. So, you know, the, right. So, right. Mm-hmm. So this, this is very old technology. <laughs> Woo, that was good. That, see, that's the meat I'll be looking for. That was good. And you know what? You write even as far as if you would like scry with a crystal ball because all right. you're doing is, you know, reflecting back those images. You know what I'm saying? And, and your pineal yeah. gland is picking that up. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Do you know the Do you know the movie I'm referring to? The Mummy, the original Mummy. Um, I have no idea. I don't watch a lot of movies. Well, not anymore. But um, no, I don't. Um, okay. Maybe I should look at it again so I can get a good yeah, idea. L- listen, listen, listen. All, all of y'all, listen to me, okay? This is one of the things I rec- this is one of the things I recommend everywhere I go. I say, you know, you got all this wonderful computer generated, you know, all this stuff, but do yourselves a favor, devote an hour and a half, sit down and watch the mummy. It's made in nineteen thirty two, I think. It's Boris Karloff because it's got a whole bunch of stuff in it, but the very end of the movie says everything that you need to know in life, everything you need to know in life. <laughs> so basically it's an esoteric movie. They're, they're giving you 
um, esoteric and occult knowledge or whatever inside the movie. Is that yeah. what you're telling me? Uh, even beyond that, this is this is this is not even this is not this is this is even before you even get to the occult. This is like the found. This is the foundation of. Uh, well, you, you just check it out, and then we'll talk about it. Yes. Okay. I'm gonna be calling you back. <laughs> I know. I know that. I know. Look, look you're gonna be screaming when you call me back. Okay, woman. <laughs> okay. Because because you're gonna be saying what everybody else says. I didn't realize that was in that movie. Oh my God! How I seen this movie? How did I miss that? And it's like, uh huh, uh huh. That's, that's right. That's right. Okay, uh, now Doctor D'Angelo, you gonna have to get him back on at least once a month, cause uh. <laughs> Bad. He got uh, wisdom you can soak up, okay? Yes. Yes, this is true. This is true. L- like a biscuit. <laughs> 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 that okay, was beautiful. Well, just added that. Uh, directly. So now we have that. I put them and recommended the movie, the Mummy movie, 1932, by your suggestion. Even your suggestions. So. <laughs> Okay. So we got it. It's 1932 too, and it's actually on. Um, where did I see it? It's um on ib imdb dot com. Okay. It's the uh, the mummy 1932. Mhm. I hope it's on Netflix. <laughs> it's an old one. So I don't know. Child. But you can find it. You can be found. Trust me. Can be done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put you on mute. You have any more questions? No, that was the only two questions I had. And I thank y'all for listening. And thank Dr. Love. I thank you for all your wisdom and information. Appreciate you. Uh-huh. Okay. Anybody else have any questions? Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. I'm gonna. You have any questions? Uh, no. Uh, uh, it was a beautiful program. I'm gonna uh recheck on it in the archive, but I'm kind of in the thick of things, so no. Thank you, okay. Doctor Loving, and uh, thank you, Chef Alchemy, for all that you do. That was awesome information about the magnets and all of that. Thanks again. Thanks, mm-hmm. love. Okay. All right, do you want to add anything to our listening audience? you want to give them any other good goodies besides the movies, besides the Dr. Tree, uh, also suggestions about composting? They really want to go back in archives and listen to that, how they can be. And I put, we are all farmers, so y'all need to go back and listen to archives while we are all farmers. And go back and you go hear some little glitches because we've had glitches from the beginning and then it just mellowed out like everything else in life. It just like, woo. See, I told you, don't let retrograde make you feel one way because it's really not. 
That's all I'm saying. So, uh, you have anything you want to say to the audience? Well, well, uh, yes, I do. Um, you know, retrograde. Um, the 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 message I get from retrograde is that sometimes I have to go back in order to go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people understand that just on a working level. There, there's just times in my life. Um, you know, even and I'm not talking metaphysically. You know, there are times when I would work, be working somewhere, and I would be demoted from my position. And yet, I said, okay, let me just see what the universe is trying to tell me. And you know, whatever the circumstances was, I worked through it, and suddenly I'm promoted past the people. You know that I was working with previous. You know, sometimes you have to go back in order to go mm-hmm. forward. Um, however, what I wanted to talk about just briefly is the fact that we're coming up on the equinox. And and one of my favorite experiences is uh, staying up all night or either getting up around 3 in the morning on the morning of the equinox and uh, outside because around 4 to 4.30, when it's still dark, suddenly a bird will start to sing. And then I start to hear all the birds of that type. So if it's sparrows, then all the sparrows are singing. And then suddenly the starlings start to sing. And then um, we have, up here we have cardinals and bishops, I mean, I mean, cardinals and um, uh, what's that other bird called? Blue jays. Okay, and by four thirty, all the birds are singing, all of them, and they continue to sing until the sun comes up, and that's how I always know it's the equinox and that it's springtime. All right, now. So, when is the equinox this go around? What date is that? Uh, you know, I've been so deep in the lab, I haven't looked. Um, I haven't looked. I don't actually know, but it's 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 either the twenty first or the twenty second. I think I heard it was the twenty second, but don't quote me on that. Um, but we'll find. We got. We you know we got a few days to, before it happens, so we can we, we got time to check it out. All right, sounds beautiful. Sounds beautiful. See, I went off. I went off subject again. They brought you around to gardening. <laughs> no, not not like this. Look, you can't you can't get off course. You can't get off course with this with this kind with this kind of pursuit. You know. Okay. Um, uh, now, I I had wanted to talk about um, when plants went to flowers. Okay. Uh but I you know th- that that might be for another time but uh, you know that was a that was a humongous leap. Um that was yeah that, that, that it, I don't know if it was evolutionary or what how you want to describe it but you know plants making flowers 
uh-huh. you know, just just is mind boggling, you know, um how they came up with that and what they're used for. Um uh-huh. so so flowers also uh is something that we get from from gardening. That's sort of a, a bonus. Uh-huh. You know, be, because a lot of them are not edible, but they're aesthetically beautiful just on their own and the smell of them, you know, uh, aside from the fact that they're doing work, you know, they're, they're, they're pleasing, they're pleasing to us, you know, they could have all been gray, you know, but the, the, the variety of color, um, and yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just fascinating. And, uh, and yeah, so so we'll we'll talk about not just flowers, but um, the eye and color, and okay. you know what 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 color does, how color influences the body and our emotions and 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 the mind as well. Okay, definitely gotta write but that I, down. Make sure I remember. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I once again I I want to thank everyone for listening. I appreciate the questions, um, and also uh, uh, the young lady said something that I think is completely relevant, and that is confirmation, okay? Um, remember before I was talking about how farmers share information? Well, yeah. a lot of times, a lot of times the sharing of information is also the confirmation of information, you know, um, you know, somebody shares something with me, and it might be something that I got this wild idea to try, and you know, I tried it, and they might say, "Oh, well, no, that's you know, you know, they've been doing research on that," or they might say, "Well, water works good, but you know, hot water works better," you know, that's that's a form of confirmation. So we always want to stop and acknowledge the confirmations in life because a they tell us we're going in the right direction um b um it's a form of sharing and c it gives us the courage to be bold and to you know to, to keep doing what we're doing all right now you know it it takes courage it takes courage to go out on one's own and not follow what everybody else is doing. Yeah. But, you know, we don't, we don't usually, we don't usually, um, you know, put um, whole sections in the history book about the people that, you know, went along with the program. You know, yeah. we generally, we generally remember the people that painted the face with two eyeballs on one side. <laughs> okay, going to the wild side. <laughs> the mm-hmm, wild side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You know now, now you know it, it's so funny because you know we talk about um, metaphysical, mm-hmm. and yet. Um, there are some things that are metaphysical that reflect the practical world. 
Right. So, so let's just for for a second take the eye of Horus, what they call the all-seeing eye or the eye of Horus. Right. Uh, and of course, the eye of Horus is supposed to be, you know, the falcon. Well, if you've ever seen a falcon flying overhead or a hawk flying overhead, and it's just gliding along, you know, taking its time, but then it wants to look at something on the ground, it'll turn its head and close one eye and focus the other eye downward. And when we go into the lab and we ask the scientists about how our eyes see, one of the things the scientists will tell us is just like we have a dominant hand, we have a dominant eye. So, you know, like you're right-handed. Are you right-handed or left-handed? Hello? Well, just like we're right-handed or left-handed, we have an eye dominance as well. And the scientists tell us that 90% of the light information that goes through the other eye is ignored by the brain. So, in other words, we see with one eye, the eye of Horus. Welcome. You are listening to Food Alchemy Network. I am Dr. D, creator and host of Food Alchemy Network, where we bring wonderful, illustrious guests to greet you, educate you, enlighten you, lift you, make you smile, make you laugh, make your heart feel glad and all that jazz. So I would like to ask you to follow us on this channel of Food Alchemy Network. I hope you stay tuned and enjoy the show. Blessings, a ho, and namaste. <laughs> 